and welcome to the More to Story podcast. I'm so glad you come along. Look, you're going to find this interesting today as we look at the quest for the historical apostles with Brian Shelton, but that's coming in just a second. This podcast is brought to you by Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. And that happens through a variety of programs. Academic programs is we're training people for bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degree with doctoral doctoral degrees. And we also have the Wesley Institute, a program that takes people through every book of the Bible in a year. That's the Bible track. Seminary professors do this every week. We have folks who do this for a nine-month period. And we've just started a theology track that take, takes people through major subjects in theology. So you can join the Wesley Institute at wbs.edu. And you can find out more about our academic programs as well. Also, this podcast is brought to you by WPO Development. Their CEO, Keith Waters, says, if you don't know where you're going, any path will get you there. Isn't that true? And so he is somebody who has led more than 250 organizations across the country through feasibility studies, capital campaigns, mission planning studies. I've worked with him in the past and appreciate his ministry. So I encourage you, if you're in a, in a place where you're trying to figure out where your organization can go, he's worked with uh, universities, hospitals, organizations, churches, uh, nonprofits. I encourage you to check him out at WPO Development. And you can find a link for him in my show notes. And finally... My little study of the book of Jude is available. It's a six-week video-based study of these 25 verses that come right before the book of Revelation. So I would encourage you to check this out as we are trying to help people be contenders for the faith once for all delivered to saints. And so this is a, a small group study that comes with like kind of licenses or logins for a couple of different users that you can use in a small group. So you can find that at andymillerthe3rd.com. That's andymillerii.com. All right. So I am glad to welcome into the podcast, Dr. Brian Shelton, who is the chair of the Christian Studies and Philosophy Department at Asbury University, my alma mater and his alma mater as well. Brian, I'm so glad to have you on. Thanks, Andy. It's an honor to be here. I love more to the story. And of course, I appreciate the great work of Wesley Biblical Seminary. Right. Well, and you've just been at Asbury for a while. And some of my audience actually probably knows you from your past institution, who I have had, I bumped into people who attended Tacoa Falls. So you were there for a number of years. Isn't that right? I was. I was there for maybe 18 years, both as professor, but also as academic dean. Oh, a very celebrated role. Only the greatest people are able to, <laughs> or the, 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 what would you call people who step into that spot? I don't know. Uh, well, where, since then, I've grown in wisdom and stature with God, and I'm back in the classroom three-quarter time. Okay, there you yeah. go. Well, I'm sure that's a great place. And it's it, how we're, we're, we're both coming to this from our offices, and you are coming from the celebrated basement of Hughes Auditorium, I'm guessing. Is that right? Indeed, where yours and other people's picture is hanging right outside my door. Oh, there. See, you can say hello to me every morning. <laughs> Well, I was surprised. I didn't know about this book. It, you, you needed to do a better job of self-promotion. I'm just telling you, okay? It was until I got the Baker Academic Catalog, and I'm looking through, and then I saw this picture. I thought, oh, that looks like an interesting book, and I'm holding it up here, The Quest for the Historical Apostles. And then I saw W. Brian Shelton 
there it is. So I'm so excited to see this book. Now, I know of your other book that was published through Francis Asbury Press on Provenient Grace, but this is fascinating. And I knew that this was your area looking at the early church, but I'm, I'm curious, tell, tell us just in general about your discipline. Like, is, is this where you've given most of your academic attention? Uh, my training is in historical theology, particularly okay. in the early church. So naturally, this book, um, since the dissertation, uh, fit perfectly. And it's the first real uh, project that I've had in patristics uh, on this uh, major of a level at, at a book size, if you will. Uh, Provenient Grace was written because I really felt like Wesleyan Arminians needed that understanding. And that is, you know, the, the only comprehensive treatment, single volume of Provenient Grace that's favorable towards it. And so I was excited to get back into the early church. Uh, for me, particularly, there were three things kind of motivate me uh, to write this. One was I was taking students to Rome and I was leading them on these tours and it felt like every time I turned around, there was another place where an apostle would be buried. And suddenly I, I wondered if Luther's uh, quip wasn't true that 13 of the 12 apostles are buried in Europe type of effect. I mean, their influence was, was represented everywhere. Uh, but then second of all, I was reading some books. In fact, it was a Sunday school class, a small piece on the apostles and how they can inspire us. And there was all of this made up stuff about the personality of the apostles. And I thought, you know, this has no historical basis whatsoever uh, that James, uh, son of Alphaeus, we don't know much about. So he must have been the quiet apostle. Mm. And everyone who's shy in the kingdom can be encouraged. Uh, it just wasn't a basis for some of those comments. But then the third was I was interested, uh, just as you and many of your listeners would be, many Christians, what happened to them afterwards? And so I would hit, you know, go to the internet, I would hit these sites, and there was all these different variations of death and martyrdom. And I just wanted to organize it. And that eventually led to this kind of comprehensive project. Uh, that that I, I really I really loved it and I really liked the product and I think a lot of people have been enjoying and learning and growing from it. Now it's interesting the title you have obviously is playing on a few other quests, but yeah, I, I think like the quest for mm -hmm. the historical apostles. I what tell us about that, the title. I am shamelessly riding on the coattails of Albert Schweitzer. Let's face it. <laughs> uh, the quest for the historical Jesus is well known. And I wanted to do something like that. I wanted right. to do something historical, something critical, and in particularly to discern between the sources which of these stories are true of the apostles. It is unlike Schweitzer in that I do trust the scripture and see it as authoritative, historically authoritative included. I wasn't discerning at that level, but I had to discern critically the other sources. I went to early church histories. I went to commentaries because occasionally a church father might be writing a commentary on a gospel, and he just adds this historical detail that's not found anywhere else about the life of that uh, apostle, and then also went to sermons that were preached, and then the big source that really needed some filtering were Gnostic gospels, Gnostic acts. Yeah. These are the apocryphal New Testament uh, stories. So I had to discern, I had to separate, I had to weigh, and that was one of the challenges, but also one of the most interesting joys of the yeah. research. Interesting. Now, 
one of the things that I've uh, been a, a typical kind of apologetic line for the historical reality of the resurrection is, well, the apostles were willing to die um, for what they believed, and nobody would die for a lie. And so typically you'd say something like many or most or all of the apostles died for their faith. Is that true, Brian? Well, it seems to be true. John becomes the most likely exception, uh, perhaps a, a, an old age type of death there. Sure. But we realize that, of course, his life isn't characterized by ease and balance, if you will. But rather, um, history has him on the Isle of Patmos exiled uh, under Domitian. So there's a, there's a good chance, of course, that's going to wear on him in a way that uh, even if he leaves Patmos and returns maybe to the Ephesus area, uh, still there's quite a bit of suffering there that that weighs on the end of on the life of an old man, uh, if you will. But indeed, that's the great evidentiary historically that one of the ways that Christianity seems to be reflecting a real reality that. Uh, from the incarnation to the walking on the water to the resurrection to Pentecost to some of the stories of miracles of the apostles, is that there is this great momentum that enters the world stage that is kind of unparalleled in human fashion Amen. in a way that suggests, of course, that there's a divine hand that's at work in these. The apostles do go on beyond Acts, and they, they take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. And for them to have these lives— uh, really reflects something profound and transformative on their lives. And so we do see them taking the belief in the resurrection and the work of Jesus and fulfilling that, that great verse from the Last Supper, uh, the things that I do and greater things you Amen. will do as Jesus goes to the Father. Yeah. So it's interesting, too, as you think about like what we can know from Scripture, we can piece together some details, but we don't know as much. And what is it that what are some of the basic points that we can discern from scripture about the apostles? Like mm -hmm. often, like for instance, I'm doing this, I have this study out on Jude and many people are surprised to learn that Jesus had these half brothers, right? But nevertheless, mm -hmm. like it's it seems like surprising people because we have to draw in other mm -hmm. tradition to help us understand that more fully. But mm -hmm. let's just start with the scripture piece. Like, so, and, and we might jump around here with some of the apostles, but what can we discern from Scripture? Not as much as one right. might expect quantitatively. Right, right. Uh, we like the quality of Scripture, of course. Amen, yeah. If you stop and think about the apostles in the book of Acts, well, first of all, in the Gospels, we get introduced to them. And this was one of the big drives, of course, for the book, is we're intrigued by these figures. We want to know what happens to them because we see their disciple-making. Sometimes it's victorious, and sometimes it's quite humbling. And we, we relate to them, and we relate to the humbling part, and we get inspired by it. So we want to track with them. We want to follow. And we trend up with them when they trend up, and so also down. When you get to the book of Acts, you really got, you got a list at the beginning, by the way. Right. It's revisited. Judas Iscariot is, is, has exited the list. Matthias, of course. Uh, enters by lots. And then Peter and John, temple arrest, and then James and Peter, 
right. uh, arrested. James is martyred there by Herod Agrippa. And then Peter gets free and he goes to an unknown place. Mm-hmm. And Peter just falls off. He reappears at the Jerusalem Council, which right. you know not from whence he comes or where <laughs> he goes after that. Yeah. And really, the book of Acts focuses on the ministry of Paul as the gospel right. goes to the, uh, to the uttermost. Beyond those foci, there's really nothing. Uh, you start to look at each of the individual apostles, you almost overlook. Occasionally, one of them will have a hit. They ask a profound question at the Last Supper. But that's really kind of it. And so you have to wonder, and immediately you encounter church history, and yeah. you hear this phrase, church tradition says, and you, uh, the average layperson especially has no idea where this, right, sure. this church tradition corpus uh, is contained. And you described some of that, like with some of the, but, but some of the big pieces you said earlier, but just go through those again for me, like what those big pieces of church tradition are, particularly from the first few centuries? A big document. The big piece, yeah, the big pieces, yeah. uh, you know, the, the big pieces are directly proportional to the big disciples okay. on the whole. You, you know, you may, almost may, may not realize it, but it's a historical importance in identifying and understanding the apostles, their relationship even, and their significance. In each of the three lists of the apostles in the New Testament, there's actually a bit of an order to them, three tiers. Hmm. And the top tier always, Peter, Andrew, James, and John are listed. And then seamlessly, there's a middle tier with Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, <laughs> Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew. Thomas, and Matthew. Yes, and th- right. thank you, uh, indeed. And then the, the last four uh, with uh James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Jude, and Judas Iscariot always listed last. Okay. So the the higher they are, the more they get the deep, powerful episodes like the Transfiguration. Sure. The lower they are on that list in the third tier, you're lucky if you have, you know, one to two hits about them in the entire uh, New Testament. And so uh, in in those three, we've got more stories of the top tier. Okay. And so the, the big episodes, for example, for Peter are that after the New Testament, although important, the Jerusalem Council for him, and important, of course, the Cornelius scenes where he is exposed to the Gentiles who, right. you know, show the signs of believing in the Jewish Gentile um, gradient there. Peter, beyond the New Testament, does seem to have a Galilean ministry, naturally so, and then eventually... In Rome, church tradition has, but really earlier in Rome than you think. Acts of Peter, Acts of Peter and Paul have a motive for Peter to go to Rome, and that is that Simon Magus has been over there. The same Simon, of course, that he encounters wants to buy the miracles and the signs. Right, sure. Like, so that's where you get the language for simonry, right? So like this in, in Acts as well. Keep going. Yep. He's over in Rome talking about how he's the true disciple of Jesus. He's the one that the church is being built on the foundation of. After all, this Peter guy denied Jesus three times. What kind of foundation is that? And so eventually, I guess maybe there's a following in Rome, and Peter feels like this just this just should not be so. So a showdown develops, and he goes to Rome, and he challenges 
uh, Simon Magus. Simon won't even come out of the house. Peter empowers a dog with human speech, and the dog goes into the house and trash talks to, uh, Simon, <laughs> trying to get him to come out and confront Peter. And eventually this leads to supposedly, uh, by the way, we supposedly should have been said a little bit earlier, uh, leads to a showdown of miracles over the ancient forum in which Simon Magus claims that he can fly and he supposedly flies and Peter prays that he would crash. And in fact, Simon's career ends just a few minutes, a few moments later as he falls and breaks his leg specifically in three places but that eventually leads to the great two stories, one of Simon Peter being freed from prison, going out on the Appian Way, encountering Jesus coming in, carrying his cross. And Peter says to him, Lord, what are you doing in Rome? I just escaped from prison. Where are you going, quo vadis? Mm -hmm. And the Lord responds, I'm going to Rome to be crucified. Mm. And Peter realizes he wasn't called to escape prison this time. He was called to suffer and to die. Uh, so that episode, as well as the episode of Peter on the Vatican Hill, historians are, are really sure whether the bones are the bones specifically is a little more challenging, but that he was crucified on the Vatican is not a problem, that he wanted to be crucified upside down, unlike his savior, although there's a Gnostic maybe justification for that. There's a there's an end to Peter's life. Those represent the high points uh, for Peter. You've got a couple similar ones for John. You've got uh, Andrew's life ending in Pat, uh, Patmos, Greece, uh, in a way that that's not competed. His bones may be up in St. Andrew's, Scotland, but the bones actually may have been destroyed uh, during the the Reformation there, uh, Puritans particularly aren't going to value relics quite so much. Uh, and then as you move into the others, uh, let, let Andy, me back up. Let me before yeah. we get to them. Let's. Um, I wanted to ask one question. I'm really glad to get into the uh, Peter piece, but before we go too far, the nature of what an apostle is. That's something that I think is helpful to understand because, you know, we have people a couple, you know, around the corner from me. There's somebody who's indicated the title apostle. And I think that there's some some good that comes with that. But the historical apostles, you have a list that includes Paul as well. But who is, and Paul includes himself in that. So in that scripture, we're going to take that in. But tell me, like, how what is the rationale or the the kind of the criterion for an apostle? An apostle is one who is appointed, really, as someone who was a disciple, particularly, who emerges, moves into this role of a church leader, uh, one who has been appointed by Jesus, first and foremost, primary apostle, we might even say. Okay, primary. Uh, one who plays a significant role in the founding of the church. Now, beyond that, it's fair that we can make a case for Barnabas, for example, in an apostolic role, Paul becomes the, the last of the apostles. Uh, we, we don't need to have Judas Iscariot as an apostle, although because Luke kind of names after the fact of the apostles in his writing, you get the word attributed to each of them, including Judas Iscariot. Uh, that seems to be Luke writing later, looking back and realizing that the disciples are apostles. So it's a special office in the New Testament and in the early church, and particularly has a leadership and a pioneering dimension to it at a time when the church needed to move forward. 
This, of course, uh, raises the question of apostleship today. And you know, there are two schools, some that this is reserved for the early church, and others would say that the office of apostle perpetuates into the present. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that people like Randy Hirsch, for example, would have an expect an apostle represented in every church, along with four other offices. And so that that office is for today, and some carry the title apostle. If that's the case, I hope that they would be working in a kind of pioneering context. Right, right, right. In a way that is analogous to the New Testament. Right. And in that, that sense is like the church being apostolic then taking on the apost- somebody who has that apostolic leadership fits within that. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, it, now, when we think about the brothers of Jesus, so James and Jude, at least, who are authors in the New Testament, um, I always th- think it's interesting in Jude, Jude actually refers in third person to the apostles. So he, mm-hmm. doesn't, he doesn't identify himself as an apostle. Is, but is James thought, of, you know, James is called a pillar of the church, James, the brother of the Lord. Um, is he ever listed as an apostle? Yes, he is. And Luke's gospel is going to be called apostle. Okay. Um, you know, what's difficult here is James is the most conflated. And actually, I should qualify. He's listed as an apostle if this is the same figure. But if we're going to have James as the son of Joseph, particularly even by right a former marriage uh, right, for right. maybe someone who might be a Catholic listener in <laughs> particular, then in that case, um, he, he is not called apostle in the New Testament. Here's the problem with James, and here's why I gave the quick answer, and I should have given the quick answer. There's a phenomenon called conflation, and it made this project messy, I'm messy, sure. especially to start till I figured out there was a conflation um, mystery. It goes something like this. If you looked at some of these authors and combined them, you could have something like 75% of all the apostles related to one another within first cousinship, like all of them. Like every time the apostles were together listening, sitting at the feet of the master, it was also a family reunion. By the time you have Jude James as brothers of Jesus, and also Simon the Zealot is sometimes conflated or attributed his brothership, if you will, there. And then with Alphaeus, James, son of Alphaeus, you actually have this figure at the cross with Mary, who's going to bring in um, another figure that suddenly, and and by the way, the idea that uh, Matthew is a brother, as a brother to Simon, the zealot, and now you've got this zealous Israelite, and you've got this uh, traitor, you know, this sellout to Rome collecting taxes, Uh, you've just suddenly, and then you connect them over through the figure at the cross with Mary, uh, just because of the root of Alphaeus and another name. The result is, you know, Matthew is actually now the the bro- brother or wow, cousin of Jesus, if you will, and, and what is meant by cousin. So it really, I had to separate these and I had to qualify the traditions, especially in the lower tier of the apostles where there's fewer stories, fewer historical details. And what we do have is some generalizations of regions of their ministry. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, I'm so glad you've taken time to do this for us, Brian. Now, also too, that gets into a little bit of debate about who the when you're talking about who's at the cross, who the beloved disciple is as well. That's mm-hmm. not 
uh, and I, I, I find Ben Witherington's argument that Lazarus is the beloved disciple to be pretty convincing myself. That's mm. another story, but I am also here's, here's my, my dad would definitely want me to ask this question because I'm Andy Miller, the third, I have Andy Miller, the fourth mm. at home. And mm. we're always looking, what is the deal? Like Andrew in scripture, where my name comes from. So tell me, what do we know about the historical apostle Andrew? <laughs> historical apostle Andrew uh, has a, a very interesting feature within the New Testament. It's easy to overlook. Uh, it's kind of twofold. One is he's regularly with Philip. Okay. Consistently. And that's interesting, particularly because... Right, you've got some Greek nomenclature here going on. Uh, they are the ones who are associated with Gentiles a little bit more within the stories of the New Testament. For example, right, the Greeks come, they want to talk to Jesus, and it's Philip and it's Andrew. And they're often listed together outside of the New Testament. There's, there's some coupling that happens in the uh, historical, in the church histories. Uh, and those are one. Beyond the book of Acts, you've got ministry across Turkey, Anatolia, ancient Anatolia. You've got ministry uh, stories of Andrew in Macedonia, and then ministry stories in Greece, uh, particularly his death in Petros, Greece. There's a huge cathedral there. It's been there for seemingly forever in Petros. It's a coastal city. And there, supposedly, he, his life ended, martyrdom, and also um, he was buried. And so the church is, was built over a burial site uh, and martyrdom site also. For Andrew, uh, there's two things I like. Uh, okay. in, terms of his in terms of his death, I love, I love the narrative okay. of Andrew facing the cross. So he is crucified supposedly on a sow tire, right, which is an X-shaped cross. Okay. Which is why, by the way, the, the flag of Scotland with its St. Andrews, the patron saint of Scotland, has this X-shaped cross on it. That's okay. yeah. Andrew's crucified saltire. He has this, there's this recorded narrative in which he faces the cross and it's hail, oh cross. Like there you are, here I am. Wow. I have waited for this. Oh, cross of the, you know, the platform of the death of my Savior and Lord. Uh, oh, cross that I've inevitably been spiraling towards in my ministry and my recent trial. A well done cross uh, oh. type of thing. Uh, it's powerful because he's confronting quite comfortably, even inspirationally, the reality of his martyrdom. What's hard historically is we actually have this long discourse of him facing the cross. Uh, in, in fact, you also have, um, for Andrew, you, you have supposedly, this is stated historically, that the magistrate, I think, wanted him crucified in a way that he could his life could be maintained uh, so that he would stay alive longer. And suffer longer, and that the dogs would come and lick his sores during the night when the people have gone away. So there's a deep suffering um, yeah. and a great joy for Andrew's crucifixion. Uh, but the other fascinating story is that supposedly Matthias is captured by cannibals uh, up north of the Black Sea, and they pluck out his eyes because that's how they would keep their victims from running away so that when the next feast came, 
they would have a storehouse for their banquets. And so Matthias is blinded and imprisoned and praying, and Andrew is over in Macedonia or Greece. God calls Andrew to get on a boat to come over and to help to rescue Matthias. And so he does. Uh, By the time Andrew arrives, actually, Matthias has been healed of blindness. You you almost wonder if he wasn't as mad as Jonah when Nineveh repented a little bit. Uh, But still, there's thousands uh, of people who are affected by this, and there's mass resurrections, and eventually Andrew is taken into heaven, interestingly enough, your namesake. There you go. Or or Matthias, one of them, I suddenly forget, is taken into heaven and the other meanders on, uh, but both continue their ministry. Story. It's in the acts of Andrew and Matthias that they're coupled together. Now, in those in the acts of Andrew and Matthias, are there are there elements that are Gnostic in those uh, those those accounts that make it so that we it's hard to ascertain yeah. what is historical and what is uh, obviously like I, I love this story and this is like very powerful and encouraging to me. But at the same time, I'm just curious, like what we can. I mean, obviously it's not canon. Like the church hasn't Mm -hmm. validated this as canon. Help me Mm -hmm. sort through some of those difficulties that I'm kind of tiptoeing around. Well, sure. Uh, This was a big deal. Almost every apostle acts, apocryphal acts of the apostles, is at risk of having Gnostic elements in it. Sometimes they're subtle. Sometimes they're they're obvious and grand. Uh, Particularly, uh, there's a term called um, encratic. There's an encraticism movement in the early church, which is highly ascetic. It's looking for dietary restrictions like you'd expect from a Levitical a disciple, a follower yeah. of, of the law. Um, abstaining from sexual intercourse was one of the most important ones because the apostles would come to town. They would convert, say, the magistrate's wife. And part of the gospel in these stories is linked to dietary fasting, not eating certain foods, keeping certain festivals, uh, wearing certain clothes, and no longer having any sexual intercourse with your spouse. And so she comes home, you know, after hearing the apostle Peter in the marketplace, and she's like, honey, I found a new religion. I'm going to love and honor you for the rest of my life. Uh, Let me tell you about Jesus. And later on tonight, we're going to close in prayer. And that's how we're going to be ending our day every day uh, from now on. And this leads to some persecution, even um, at the local level for some of these apostles, because they're doing cross-cultural ministry now. They're encountering things that that they don't fully understand, surely. And so what do we do with this? Because the gospel message has what feels like works elements to it. Uh, Those have to be discerned. Sean McDowell's work on the fate of the apostles, I think it's called, essentially is an apologetic for um, the the, the, the resurrection of Christ through the deep commitment of the apostles to go to martyrdom. Mm -hmm. And he captures that inspiration by telling some of their stories. He inspired me, Sean McDowell, in writing this book, and I helped to use it. And he's become um, an acquaintance, a friend uh, since then. I really appreciate his work. But here, he was the first uh, to really capture how New Testament historians are realizing that there can be a historical core to these stories. Right. The apostles are going to these regions. Uh, in Syria, there's a strong Bartholomew influence, that there's liturgy in the Middle Ages about Bartholomew, the Syrian. So he was probably there 
doing ministry in a way that influenced the church. Thomas in India, there's a grand yes. legacy there. Yes, very important day, Indians. Indeed, Thomas yeah. Christians, uh, people in the church will call themselves even still. And so from the early church through the ages, there's actually some traditions that come. And so the, the apostles doing some ministries, the same apostles of the New Testament, the God of miracles, uh, some of these stories surely are true. Discerning will ultimately be impossible, but we try. Yeah, yeah. and in Sean McDowell's book, I think it's helpful too, because he he gives like a rank to for the way that you can think about like, okay, we have this many facts where we can discern the historical core and this th these ones fall a little bit away, but yet we still have a good confidence mm -hmm. in. But I, I love the way that you're able to tell the stories. I think they're just so <laughs> inspired. So look, let's get, I, I want to get to that that top tier, through the top tier, and then I want to ask about a couple more. We won't be able to get to all of them. You'll have to buy the book, folks. Uh, again, we're talking about the quest for the historical possibles um, from Brian Shelton. So let's then talk about James. And you have this subtitled The Scallop Shell. Help me understand that. Sure. Uh, I, by the way, I, I gave a nickname to each of the apostles, and I didn't want it to be traditional. Yeah. I tried to go to something a little beyond the, the mainstream quality uh, just to create some curiosity. Yeah. And also for people to realize there's not always competing traditions, although there are, uh, but really that, that there's variations and there's other interesting possibilities. For James, uh, you, of course, have the beheading. You have the martyrdom in Acts chapter 12. What happens is that James gets conflated with the other James, gets conflated with James, the brother of Jesus, yeah. who the latter seems to maybe be the head of the church in Jerusalem. Right. Uh, but still, there's quite a bit of mixing going on there. In, in early church histories, Hippolytus, for example, might have something quite different in his story than Eusebius would have, than even Jerome would have, who doesn't always follow uh, Eusebius. For James, supposedly, there's a tradition that he went to Spain. Uh, this is hard because he is killed really pretty quickly in the book of Acts. Sure, sure. Uh, so we don't necessarily have to have James go himself to Spain, but that his bones were taken to Spain later. There is a story and a tradition of that. And they were deposited on the end, uh, essentially, of right the way of St. James that the hikers will take, pilgrims took in the Middle Ages. Uh, so the idea that there are some of his bones buried there uh, has historical potential. I think it's too much to squeeze James uh, to go in a life. But it's possible. It wasn't that hard, particularly from Rome, for Paul later in his ministry to go to Spain, it would not have been hard. There was a route. There were Jewish connections. Paul does have time uh, for an experience like that. But in the case of James, it's pretty short-lived. The only thing really left is to keep him from being mixed up with the other Jameses. So why the scallop shell? Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, yeah. Because pilgrims on the on the way of St. James in the Middle Ages, as they were yeah. walking to this pilgrimage site, uh, they was along the coast, so shells were readily available, okay. but water water was not. So they would take scallop shells and they would use it to scoop water. Essentially, it's a bowl. Oh, okay. Or you can leave your scallop shell outside of your tent at night, and in in the morning, it's going to be filled up with rainwater. So it was a symbol of sustenance. Okay, interesting. 
Okay, now in, in the top tier as well amongst the, uh, the apostles, you have John, and you call this chapter the eagle. Because of the association with his gospel. So okay. his gospel is sometimes symbolized as an eagle, you know, each of the four. Uh, that eagleness comes from the loftiness, uh, the okay. Christology, particularly in John's gospel. The gospel is higher. I think historically we can say John's living a little bit longer. John, on a human level, is able to process an understanding of Jesus, not inventing a Christ of faith separate from a Jesus uh, right. historically, but rather his understanding and even you know his illumination, if you will, as he walks with God. Uh, as a result, you have a more advanced gospel that, that does have a sense of elevation and loftiness, particularly to it. Yeah, interesting. Okay, I want to also talk a little bit more about Thomas, just because I know that this uh, this often in those who are from India, um, just really are connected to this story of what happened in Thomas's life and him bringing the gospel to India. So tell us a little about Thomas. Thomas uh, is, of course, forever the doubter. And I just think that's not fair. Right. Um, it's one thing if Judas is forever the betrayer. Uh, but in this case, all Thomas is, is frankly average, if you will. Uh, he just happened to have his, his doubting captured, you know, right. on video for all time for everyone to see. And in fact, Thomas is no longer a doubter. We could call him the non-doubter long-term mm. because, I mean, he, it, yeah, he's able to declare my Lord and my God. In a way, we don't even have recorded among the other disciples when they sure. see Jesus, although we, we don't necessarily doubt that. Um, yeah, for Thomas, you have a complex history, historically. Think of it this way. Assuming he went to India, would he have gone to India by boat on a southern route, or did he go by land? There's an interesting influence of Thomas in Syria, and then in modern Iran, in Parthia, and then, by the way, India almost becomes that place beyond the end of the empire, right? India right. is just like a vastness. Like there's no sign that said, welcome to India in the ancient world. <laughs> it was just beyond the civilization zone. Yeah. So India is such a large mass that there's actually a Northern and a Southern set of legends for Thomas. Okay. And I think more historically or less historically one or the other, but particularly the land route intrigued me because you've got this influence along the way. And it was the one chapter in which I could not name or make a claim that I, I would suggest that this was his death spot for each of the chapters. Each one is on one apostle. I've got a map on each one with the regions of their most likely travel, with many regions eliminated from the, the supposed histories, by the way. I made some judgment calls, but I always had one place, specifically the city, if I can, with a cross, which represents their death spot. For Thomas, I didn't feel specialized enough to make that call. Sure. So I have two crosses. There's a northern and there is a southern one. What's interesting for Thomas is that there are these stories of his unwillingness to go to India, like he drew a bad straw. There's actually a <laughs> lot. There's a stories of lots traditions that the apostles cast lots to see where to go. And Thomas gets India. And actually, Jesus has to take Thomas to the dock, sell him as an indentured servant. That's right. The resurrected <laughs> Lord returns. Uh, and Thomas says, I'm a builder. I'm an architect. 
Yeah. He goes to India. He is indentured as an architect. And in the great story over there, um, Andy, is that he's given a treasury. He's given funding to build this palace uh, for the for uh, the, the emperor. And so he's called in three months later and he said, he says, where's my palace? How's it going? And uh, Thomas is like, great. And he, eventually the, the emperor says, where's my palace? Right. And he calls in all of the poor people of the church, essentially. And he says, here's the treasure. Here's what I've invested in. You have a heavenly palace. Oh, great <laughs> emperor. And the emperor is disappointed. Uh, but of course, there's great stories of conversions, miracles, uh, even some preaching contained in the in the Acts. Yeah. Oh, man. I love it. Okay. So then also, the last one I want to ask about is Apostle Paul. Um, we're well aware from scripture of his suffering, his imprisonment, um, likely under Nero. But what do we know about Paul from the extra canonical tradition? We have a lot on Paul. Uh, it is Acts of Paul and Acts of Peter and Paul. There are some really funky stories out there. Uh, that one that Paul goes to the afterlife and encounters Judas Iscariot, by the way, in Hades, waiting on Jesus to apologize, uh, waiting on him so that Judas can apologize to Jesus. Right. And Paul sees his torment. There is a tradition that Paul went to Rome. Of course, we see this. I'm sorry, to Spain. We see this um, in, in Romans as he anticipates and hopes for this uh, thing. Right. Uh, I always thought it was fancy thinking like the uttermost parts of the earth could be Rome, the capital, right? Caput Mundi, the head of the, the world. But somehow somebody needed to go to the ocean to get to the edge. But I'll tell you, I became a bit of a believer in Paul after Spain. I looked closely at the two tones of his letters in the New Testament. And there really is, uh, in the book of Acts particularly, to start, He's got a lot of freedom at the book of Acts. He's there a couple of years. He's meeting with religious leaders. Right, sure, He's sure. in the house. I mean, this guy almost, he, he has a lot of liberty. Uh, but then when you read some of the pastoral, late pastorals, right? Second Timothy, he's been poured out. He's spent, he's fought the good fight. He's virtually done here. How, how do you, how do you do compare these two? Well, if there's a tradition that he, actually left Rome, that he was in Rome twice. I think that actually fits with the tones and the words that we see in the New Testament. Uh, it was, again, easy to be able to go from Rome to Spain. There was a Jewish uh, tradition a community there. And the tradition is actually that maybe the Jews there remembered why he was in Rome when whatever he was sent right after Festus and Felix that he's brought there. It's almost like no one seems to want to put him on trial or to defend um, the accusations against him. And so let me jump in there. Cause like, it's interesting that um, I've always remember the last two words of acts because of Rosaria Butterfield's book It's called uh, with openness unhindered. Like it ends, mm -hmm. it ends like that. Paul was able to proclaim the gospel with openness unhindered. Like there, there mm -hmm. is like still, it's not just this final conclusion to mm -hmm. his life there okay so i just keep, keep going so there's this tradition that he's able to keep moving on yeah the only thing left was that he was brought back to rome and he was put on trial there are also some historical sites maybe four to five historical sites depending on how you want to judge or suppose it in rome and you can almost plot a life of paul 
there. And it makes sense that he would have been on trial over here and martyred over here and buried over here, even maybe imprisoned on one route. Meanwhile, uh, he's a tent maker. The leather workers in the Jewish community is actually near an old Roman barracks. So it's likely that he could have been among the Jews while also on house arrest and guarded in a way that really makes sense for an earlier phase of Roman life. Huh. So the idea then is he goes to Rome, is under house arrest. But then are you saying that he's able to go out? from there to, to Spain? Uh, uh, forgive me if I missed something there. Yes, yes, that he is set free. Uh, is okay. there a trial? Again, there's no urgency to put him on trial in the book of Acts upon his arrival in Rome. He seems to just be waiting. Yeah, yeah. And you know, the, the religious leaders are coming to him and he's able to dialogue. We're talking two years here. And in fact, there's not even his death after those two years. Right, right. But rather there, there's this, this drop off. So the idea is maybe there's something wrong with his accusation, something wrong, or we'd say right with his trial. There you go. And that there's there's liberty and he fulfills this dream of going to Spain. I mean, he's halfway there. And then eventually new conflicts results in his uh, re-imprisonment and being brought back to Rome and then martyred and then buried on the Ostian way. So his, and his actual death. Is that on a cross or how, how is it that he's? No, it's down? by beheading. Okay. Uh, you have uh, it's interesting walking around Rome because often Peter and Paul will be statuaries together. Uh, you have Paul always symbolized by the sword. Okay. You have that maybe because he calls scripture the sword of the spirit. And of course, he's a great scripture writer. But also this is his martyrdom um, mode. For most of the apostles, we often you see an instrument with them, and this is how they died, and it becomes their symbol. For Paul, as a Roman citizen, he's going to be privileged, and his death can be merciful and quick. So he's going to be beheaded, as opposed to Peter, who's this rugged Galilean without a strong Roman status. And so he can be tortured, just like Andrew, his brother, tortured uh and suffer without any sense of legal mercy or expect or virtue, if you will, they would call it. Sure. Uh, what's interesting on Paul is, and for Peter also, Gaius in the early third century writes, come to Rome. We have the trophies. We have these, these marks, these remembrances, commemoratives of Peter and Paul. And he names Peter on the Vatican and Paul on the Ostian way. And this is a draw to pilgrims, or at least to his letter recipient, to come have your faith bolstered, because there is this tradition, if you will, of this, this tracing of the lives and the legacies, uh, in the, this case of Peter and Paul. But Paul's often symbolized by the sword and beheading. So oh, we're going to have to close up here, but I'm, I'm interested. What was um, um, something that surprised you? like that you're just really happy you found as you're researching this book. I know that the mo I'm going to ask you the most, the most surprising, the most uh, exciting thing that you found that you didn't expect to find in your research. Besides the clarity on the death of the apostles, which the lack of clarity was driving me crazy. I mean, somebody needs to do something about the internet because every time I looked <laughs> right, there was a different list of how they died. I'll take uh, you know, that th on. I'll do something about the internet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I think for me, and I, th I think f for your listeners, this is what we want. We want to know 
Where are they at? You know, where did they go? And did they fight the good fight? Or did they doubt? Did they fall away? Right. That that recent movie, um, Silence, right, about these Jesuit priests who go into Japan underground to find their mentor because they got to know, did our master, is he apostatized or did he remain faithful? Hmm. Uh, so I think for me, I really did. It was a faith building enterprise. I wanted it to be. I believed it would, but when you get into the nitty gritty of the writing experience, I think it's shown through their testimony that they were pursuing something beyond themselves, that there really was a resurrection that they believed in, that Pentecost is real, both on an individual level, right, in holiness, but also in terms of the power of the church in the world. Uh, We can do so much more uh, by, by the grace and the power of God. So I think a lot of readers would be encouraged that there is some historicity more than we ever realized that it was too easily dismissed because the sources are Gnostic. Yeah. Uh, so our faith can be encouraged by their faith, by their pursuit. Uh, and the book, I think, helps to tell, if you will, more of the story. Oh, there you go. Man, you must have, you worked that line in so perfectly. <laughs> So let me ask you this, Brian. I'm sure you're working on some other things. What what's next for you? I mean, I'm, sh- I'm sure like you've ha- this book's done. Maybe you have another project coming. I, ho- I hope at least. Tell tell me what you're working. Oh, on. Oh, you're kind to ask. I have another uh, uh, piece coming out. I, I do. It's under editorial review now. I, it will come out, I believe. Uh, but that is a historical theology of the story behind the movie The Exorcist, the 1949 exorcism. actually has a historical basis, uh, a demonization that started in Georgetown and ended at St. Louis and was closely tied to my alma mater, St. Louis University, a Jesuit school. There's a story there that has so much historicity to it. It's been called the best documented case of exorcism in the 20th century. Hmm. There's a diary behind it, and I treat it theologically. Okay. In a way that suggests if, there, if this theology is credible, then it lends itself to historicity. Yeah. Kind of the same method that happened sure, here. absolutely. And if it is historical, then the church believers have some story of recent days of real demonization and real exorcism so that the New Testament stories are not merely a pre-modern view of hysteria that they attributed to demons because they didn't have the science to know any different. This is fast. And this has been an emphasis that we've had at Wesley Biblical Seminary and offering courses in spiritual warfare. I think Mm -hmm. it's so easy for us to want to just say, oh, well, that might have just been some mental health issues in in Mm -hmm. scripture. We're not really going to adapt that. But look, this this is there are documented historical cases and Every county in America, probably where the hospitals are in positions where they're they often have an exorcist on call, right? Because there's situations and then uh, police records, all kinds of things where people have seen things. So I'm fat. I am excited to hear what comes. Do you have a publisher already? I don't. It's under review. I shouldn't name the publisher in case it goes bad. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Or in fact, or in case it goes bad for them also. Oh, there you yeah. go. <laughs> Well, anyway, I'm excited about that that coming out now. Okay, my last question, Brian, the t- title, as you have indicated, is more to the story. Is there more to the story of Brian Shelton than is usually told? 
Uh, uh, sure, I am sure that there is, uh, but maybe it would disappoint a lot of, re- of listeners. I mean, if, if they made it through this, they may not make it through 45 more minutes of me. Your story, on the other hand, I mean, you're the one who keeps coming and asking all the questions. And when do we get to ask questions of you? If I were interviewing at Wesley Biblical Seminary, I bet you they'd give me a chance uh-huh. uh, to ask you about uh, oh, apostles yeah. and what you learned from the reading. In fact, I'd like to be interviewed sometime about a book as an author and me give a quiz. Oh, my podcast interview. You are such a good good? teacher. You just want to check all that out for us here. Um, Yeah, well, I'm I'm attracted to this title and like the fact that you've done this work. So did you just turn the question around on me without actually asking me a question? I kind of did, but it's it's closing banter anyway. Oh, uh, so no, I'm 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 curious though. Like, what do you not get to talk about? Like, is, do you like to um, do you like to hunt? Do you like <laughs> to fish? Like, what is like what's something else about you, Brian, that people you don't often get to say? You you said you've done five podcasts on this book. Um, what's I, I, I have. Um, I appreciate it. it. Got this book got a lot of attention. I valued it. I did get some critics, by the way. Okay. Uh, particularly, there were there were two Catholic writers, I would say scholars, uh, who thought I, I was not as pronounced okay. on Jesus' brothers as I could have and should have been. I'm even going to Catholic dogma and and professing it, but but I couldn't, and I particularly wouldn't. Well, and I mean, certainly to- that's one of the challenges with. Um- uh, I, we you addressed it earlier. Even the perpetual virginity of Jesus, right? Like this gets to be no. very. Uh, oh yeah, the, uh, sorry, a per- perpetual virginity yeah. of Mary. Uh, yes, we don't talk about the first. Yes. <laughs> oh yes. Me. Um, you know, I I I I don't hunt. Although I love if you know any listeners want to bring some venison. I don't fish except my daughters like fishing. I don't know where they got this, so I will fish with them. Okay. Uh, to spend time really with them. I love to hike. I'm kind of segmenting okay. the Appalachian Trail. I'm not going to finish it unless some Benjamin Buttons thing happens to me. Okay. Uh, but I've done all of Georgia, uh, part of Carolina. Uh, I'm, I'm digging into Virginia now. I absolutely love this experience. If any of your listeners want to connect on the Appalachian Trail, if they have a car, right, you need two people to do the whole parking right. thing. I would love uh, to do that. And we can talk apostles up and down the trail. There you go. So now, I love, do you do it by yourself? When you uh, go, Sometimes. You, okay. I'm not afraid to hike by myself. I try not to do like more than 15 miles if I'm deep in the wilderness. Um, a little bit of bear phobia on my part, but yeah, I sure. realize it's mostly in the head. I love to see bears afterwards uh, each time, <laughs> if you will. Uh, but it's a chance to be in God's creation, to reflect, to pray, and then to dialogue if you're with friends. Yeah, I love it. I yeah. love hiking. This has been yeah. a recent thing for my family. We've like really hit the mm-hmm. national parks the last couple mm-hmm. of years. We were in Yellowstone, Tetons this summer mm-hmm. and just loved it. Well, Brian, mm-hmm. thanks so much for your time. Thanks for writing this book and for your ministry at Asbury University. Uh, I appreciate you spending some time. And folks, check out this book. Make sure you get it. Um, it's published through Baker Academic um, and the Quest for Historical Apostles tracing their lives and legacies. Brian, thanks so much for coming on. We appreciate your time. Andy, thanks so much.